This episode is brought to you by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook of your choice and support this show by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Next System Project, Open Source with Christopher Lydon, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, Activism from the Democracy at Work Institute, and the Tom Hartman Program. Society, civilizations, in some sense, are like our bodies. If there's something systemically wrong, it's manifesting all over the place um, in all our organs, and that seems to be what's going on in our world at the moment. The system is failing all around us. Our infrastructure is falling apart. Our jails are full and can't hold more people. Our young people are burdened with a trillion dollars in student debt. We're in a heap of trouble. When the temperature of the Earth is starting to rise, that's a very bad sign. Our Earth is running fever, and it's running it because it's sick in many ways. In a country like the United States, the fact that anywhere from 45 to 50 million people are hungry, this is a problem. We can't go on like this. We can't keep moving toward climate catastrophe, nuclear war, persistence of inequality, poverty, famine. There is a systems problem. These are not one-off issues. They are interconnected, and we have to look at the system as a whole. It's time to talk about alternatives. It's time to talk about what's next. We need to be aspirational and be clear about the vision of the world that we want. What is the system that humanizes us? What is the system that opens up our imagination and possibilities of cooperation? Nothing is more important right now than to discuss how can we bring about this change. As systems fail, individual and community creativity explodes, and that's what we have seen. People in this country are solving the problems themselves. They're coming up with new models and strategies. And within those models and strategies are the kernels of a systemic way to move forward. Land trusts, cooperatively owned businesses, sustainable energy, state-owned banks, urban gardening, urban farming. These small successes taken together are a proof of concept that this can happen on a larger scale. We're compelled to search for alternatives, not just analytically, but in how we live and what we do, how we organize our daily lives. And that has tremendous potential. Our actions and our imagination have to match the magnitude of this problem. We have to get out of our comfort zone. We must think with courage. All bets are off in terms of our previous thinking, our ways of thinking about the economy and our ways of thinking about politics have proven an abject and utter failure. The good news is we have no choice but to adopt revolutionary thinking. I like that. That's the exciting part about this moment. When there are no rules, then people have freedom to invent and to create new things. I have no doubt that we can create a better America. If the people who cared about these things really join together to do something about them. Anything is possible. The biggest worry for me is that we don't try, is that we don't push for what we know is right, for what we know is possible. It's time for everybody who cares about 
this country and the future of the planet to do something about it, to get involved. We can actually do better. We can build a better system. It's not impossible. It's a very American thing to do, to build a, a new system. It's a challenge. We can do it collectively, neighborhood by neighborhood, step by step. I think that the world that we're on the verge of is bright and beautiful and interesting one. Complex, local, interconnected. I hope we get there. It's time to talk about what's next. Please come and sign our statement at thenextsystem.org. Alex Gorovich, he teaches political science at Brown University, and he writes about political, political economy and workers' rights on sites like Jacobin and Salon. His new book is titled, From Slavery to the Cooperative Commonwealth. Welcome, Alex Gorovich. Uh, leap in here. Which of the problems, I mean, prioritize the problems, set an agenda here for economic reform of the Michael Lewis persuasion of the Jeremy Allaire variety, where, where, where do we have to go? Well, first off, uh, thank you very much, Chris, for inviting me uh, to Pleasure. this conversation today. It's a lot of fun to hear all kinds of utopian ideas and criticism <laughs> uh, floating around. Um, you know, I love the vision that Jeremy spells out of democratic disruption of the economy. Uh, but I have really big doubts about whether you're going to get real democratic disruption of the economy through some very creative but hard to understand new technology like Bitcoin or any number of other kinds of technologies. I think you're much more likely to get something that really challenges the roots of contemporary inequality, of the power of financial markets over the economy. You're going to get real disruption through mass political action, uh, through things like uh, um, workers going on strike, mm. uh, more robust activities by labor unions, um, sort of strong alternatives to the two-party system uh, that are willing not to just kind of change the money we use, but that are willing to challenge the basic structure of ownership and control over wealth uh, and the workplace. I mean, it's a tall order, but since we're talking in sort of quasi-utopian terms right now, um, 
I just have really big doubts about uh, whether technology, especially something like just a new money, is going to solve any of these problems. I mean, to give a couple reasons. And yet it does have these kind of rehumanizing, universalizing, Mm -hmm. uh, egalitarianizing, Mm -hmm. uh, at least implications. But um, go back, and nothing but tall order tonight. Alex, you heard in our Vox Pop on Boston Common the line that workers... On market wages have been dependent for 200 years. Yeah. Not a new condition or a new complaint. I've read you yeah. quoting a worker from 1829 to the effect that thousands among us subsist on the unnatural operation of free and republican institutions, so we call them, yeah. institutions that made the few among us arbitrarily and barbarously and enormously rich. What's to be done about it? What's to be done about it is changing the distribution of ownership and control over the basic economic assets of the society. Now, how do you change? uh, How do you radically redistribute wealth in this society? I don't think you do it by changing the currency we use. That's my doubt about Bitcoin. I think we change the distribution of wealth by doing things like socializing ownership, or promoting the development of cooperatives. Let me make this concrete. Uh, Michael Lewis sort of mentioned we should have broken up the banks, or you could have socialized the banks. So we could have opened up the books and really seen what was going on, and then seeing if the lending was really being lent for real public purposes, uh, or whether it was, or whether it was really just sort of dicey uh, shenanigans that everyone around this table and Michael Lewis and, uh, uh, himself thought was the primary activity of what these big banks were engaged in. Or to give another example, Uber, this massive $20 billion business, so-called sharing economy, isn't a sharing economy at all. It's owned by one of these fancy tech companies. And then all the workers get very poor wages. You could turn that into a producer's cooperative, where all the Uber drivers who own all the capital anyway, who actually, well, which is to say the cars and the gas, and do all the labor, actually share in the profits. That's a way to turn something into a truly cooperative enterprise. But whether we put this and denominate all this stuff in dollars or in Bitcoin or whatever, it's not enough to change the currency we use. I think it really, there's no way around changing uh, the actual distribution of, of uh, financial and, there, and other there, assets. They're all interlocking questions here. But as Michael Lewis questioned, I mean, first of all, how, do, how, how is money to be dethroned in terms of Wall Street's power, but how is it even to be dethroned in our culture? It now so dominates the minds of mm. kids in college in terms of their uh, what they're studying, where they're going, what their ambitions are, what the traps are that they know. Um, where do you begin and and tackle? And, I mean, everybody's mystery is is where is the resistance to mm. where, where where is the union movement going for? Yeah. For going out loud. Where is where is uh, solidarity of any kind? But I want to begin. I, I want to come come Jeremy back to there. a couple of these points, which is um, one of the really interesting things that's come out of of digital currency, Bitcoin, and things like it is um, there's an underlying uh, technology which is really based on this idea of what's called cryptographic trust and. I'm not going to delve too deeply into it, but the important thing is that 
the a lot of the most creative technologists that are looking at this are not looking at this simplistically as is this a new system of money they're actually looking at this as saying can we build new globally distributed and decentralized systems of organization of uh, redefining the definition of a corporation to build what are called distributed autonomous corporations or uh, distributed autonomous collectives where uh, through free association, individuals are able to enter into um, uh, collective contracts where they share equity collectively in a endeavor, and where that can be verified in a in a in a you know automated fashion, and where there's a, a system of value exchange that sits behind it. The point is that until today, if you wanted to create an entity that produced things. You had to do it within the laws of a given country, and you had to do it on the basis of the legal tender of that country and the system of exchange of that country. There's never been a way for people free associating around the world to construct institutions that are democratic and are collective and that have an economic basis that they can use and do that in a straightforward fashion. And so a lot of the visionaries that are involved in digital currency are actually really thinking about what's the infrastructure of society and the economy that we're going to have in 10 or 20 or 30 years. And it gets to, I think, something that Michael Lewis referred to earlier and you asked him, which is, is there an alternative to state capitalism as we have it today? And, And he sort of so not sure, don't really see it. And my question is, is there, is there something in the Internet and the Internet's DNA which could enable um, organizations of people, not, not just political but economic, to effectively create you know, new kinds of institutions that reflected uh, some of the values that we're talking about here today? And those we're are still actually, learning. I mean, uh, uh, we, we still don't know for sure what the expressive implications are of, of a basically free system of interconnection at any level you want to want to do it. But what's your guess? You know, I think um, uh, it's interesting. I think on the one hand, we're moving towards a world where it's, it's much easier for individuals to participate in an open and free and more democratic system of communications and finance and things like that, and that will take place. But at the same time, the very nature of these things is highly globally integrated, and uh, we're faced with issues that ultimately have to be solved at a global level. And Let me so- ask Alex, do you see a politics in this kind of technological impulse or do you see it as technology sort of playing itself yeah i i the latter i think that this is an attempt to bypass politics on the way to these utopian self-organizing uh kind of economies i i do love the image of a self-organizing economy one in which people can associate transcontinentally or internationally. Uh, but most production takes place locally in a particular factory in a particular place. And when we talk about actual producers' cooperatives, historically, that's what they've been. I mean, we actually have been there before. There have been times even in this country when you had thousands of, of producers' cooperatives. But to do that, you actually need democratic centralism. You need central power controlled democratically rather than the kind of centralized power we have uh, now, which is largely undemocratic. It's here the family is broken and it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open in a fundamental
Show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com/best, which you can also find linked up on my website. And if you'd like to learn more about the dangers of capitalism, with specific focus on its impacts on climate change, then you may want to check out Naomi Klein's new game-changing book, "This Changes Everything: Capitalism Versus the Climate." I've heard nothing but absolutely glowing reviews. And it's available on Audible and can be yours free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. So let's turn now to a response. The first question, and it's actually a group of questions that you send in to me uh, from time to time, refers to a topic you know we cover a lot here, worker co-ops, or what we like to call worker self-directed enterprises. And your questions go to the following. Will worker co-ops, two kinds of questions that I'm going to deal with today, will worker co-ops mean that everybody gets paid the same amount of money? A lot of you asked that question. And even more of you asked the following question. How can we expect worker co-ops to become a real part of this economy, a real option for people to buy from and to work in, alongside choosing a more conventional, traditional capitalist enterprise. How can that happen? Because won't worker co-ops be at a competitive disadvantage with capitalist enterprises? In other words, for example, you ask, a capitalist enterprise, the executive can make a quick decision. In a worker co-op, the workers will have to discuss it. It's a democratic process. It takes time. Won't that put you at a competitive disadvantage. Others of you put it this way. In a competitive enterprise, if you have more workers than you need, you fire them. End of story. But in a worker-run enterprise, won't there be a lot of obstacles and hesitancy of workers to damage the lives of their fellow workers by voting to fire? And how would they even get that done? Who loses their job? Who keeps it? And so on. So let me respond to both. First, the vast majority of co-ops, worker co-ops in the world, pay their workers different amounts of money. So the answer, the simple answer to the question, do worker co-ops necessarily pay everybody the same? The answer is no, most of them don't. Some do, and some of those who do will give you very interesting arguments about why that has been a very successful strategy for them and a way of holding everybody together and making for a much more cohesive uh, enterprise. But the reality is many co-ops decide that some kinds of work should be paid at a higher rate than others, depending on the difficulty of the work, the unpleasantness of the work, the amount of training and education and skill you took to acquire it, and the expenses of getting that training. So the typical worker co-op allows for quite a range of payment. Uh, to use the most famous example in the world, the Mondragon Corporation in the north of Spain, uh, with over 100,000 workers, they have a rule that they have abided by for quite some years, that the highest paid person cannot get more than about eight and a half times 
what the lowest paid person does. Just to give you an idea, in an American large corporation, the CEO will very often get two to three hundred times the amount of pay of the lowest paid worker. So it's a much narrower range of difference, but it's still a considerable range of difference that worker co-ops have chosen to use. Second, about competitiveness. Let me be very clear, because this is a question many of you send to us. There are ways in which capitalist corporations are more competitive than worker co-ops. But those are balanced by ways in which worker co-ops are more competitive than capitalist enterprises. And the net result is there's no necessity for either one to outcompete the other. And again, the Mondragon Corporation offers a very useful empirical proof. Mondragon began in 1956 in Spain with six workers forming a co-op under the direction of a Roman Catholic priest in that part of Spain. Now, fast forward 70 years later, uh, almost, and we have 100,000 workers. In order to get from six workers to 100,000, the Mondragon Corporation, a worker co-op with kinds of rules of, of the sort I just described, had to compete against literally hundreds of capitalist enterprises across the way. Mondragon, by the way, is a family of 250 co-ops. Every one of those co-ops has had to compete in its lifetime against capitalist enterprises doing similar things. Bottom line, the Mondragon Corporation won in those competitive struggles. That's why it grew. It successfully competed against all manner of capitalist corporations. So that answers the question, can a worker co-op compete against a capitalist enterprise? We know the answer because the history of Spain proves it. But let me give you the reasons why. In most worker co-ops, the workers not only do the work and control the work and direct the work, but they also own the company. That is, these are enterprises where the workers are the owners as well as the directors of the enterprise. You don't have to be both, but in many co-ops, that's the way it is. And then they don't have to give dividends to some other group of people. They don't have to charge enough money for what they sell to pay not only their wages, to pay not only the costs of doing business, but also to pay dividends to owners. They don't need to do that. So they can lower their price to outcompete another company that's a capitalist company whose prices have to allow them to pay off dividends to their shareholders. That gives them a competitive advantage. Number two. They don't have high-priced executives because the workers collectively direct their own enterprise. They pay themselves for the directorial, the managerial activity, and they don't pay spectacular high salaries to the CEO, etc. That saves them money, which allows them to price more competitively against a capitalist enterprise that does make those kinds of payments. Let me give you a couple of more examples. A worker who simply comes to work five days a week, nine to five, and feels no relationship to the people who run the factory, who run the office, he has or she has less of a commitment to that enterprise because they don't own it. Less of a commitment because they don't direct it. 
less of a commitment because they don't feel valued the way they would be if they were given responsibility and authority of directing their own enterprise. And that translates into not caring all that much about what happens. You see something going on that's that's not efficient, that's not effective. If you own the business, you pay attention. If you don't own the business, let's be nice, you pay less attention. A worker-owned and operated enterprise, every worker in there knows that his or her well-being depends on the success of that company. They are the ones in charge. And their attitude is the attitude you would expect from somebody who owns the enterprise, from someone who's a director of the enterprise, and not from someone who's just paid a sum of money and told what to do. That works out to the advantage of a worker-directed enterprise. Last thing. Every enterprise that has capitalists, board of directors, shareholders on the one hand, and workers on the other, is terribly affected by what used to be called class struggle, or the conflict between workers and managers, or the conflict between owners and workers. That kind of struggle disappears when the same people are the managers and owners on the one hand and the workers on the other. They don't struggle with themselves. They don't have that kind of conflict in the core of the production system, and that makes them more efficient as well. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, starting and supporting worker co-ops. Now, of course, we think that we believe in democracy and all of that, and yet most of us spend eight hours, or, I mean, if we're being realistic, more than that, working under a dictatorship. I mean, sure, thanks to the labor movement, we have some loosely guarded rights and guarantees, but working for a business or a corporation, or even just a small business owner, essentially means serving at their pleasure. Unless you're part of a worker co-op, that is. Worker co-ops have been around basically forever, but just don't get the kind of attention they should because our corporate media banks on the capitalist system that we're all beholden to. Unlike capitalist enterprises, co-ops give all of the rights and power to the actual human beings who provide the labor and thus create the wealth. Novel concept. You build it you benefit from it. The U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives describe co-ops as, quote, business entities that are owned and controlled by their members, the people who work in them. They have two central characteristics. One, worker members invest in and own the business together, and it distributes surplus to them. And two, decision-making is democratic, adhering to the general principle of one member, one vote. 
So it sounds great, right? If it sounds complicated to join or start, though, remember, it's an entire system we're trying to bring down here. So yeah, a little work is going to be involved, and luckily, you don't have to figure it out or do it all on your own. The Democracy at Work Institute was created by the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives to help build co-ops, especially in economically and socially marginalized communities, by providing support, strategy, and relationship building. Their website, institute.usworker.coop, has resources for startups, including frequently asked questions, 101-level presentations, questions to ask before meeting with legal counsel, guidelines, financing fundamentals, studies, and step-by-step guides. But for those interested in joining rather than starting a co-op, their homepage also links to a searchable list of existing worker co-ops by state and industry and has a form for submitting additions to their database. You can find childcare, bakeries, breweries, massage centers, landscaping companies, eco-cleaners, almost any business you can think of is being run by workers in some part of the country. California actually has a bill worth supporting in their state legislature right now that would make worker co-ops easier to start and run. It's the California Worker Cooperative Act. It's AB 816, and it clarifies existing law and broadens protections while creating more visibility for worker co-ops and providing a framework for developing new co-ops in the state. With nearly 40 million residents, or more than 10% of the total U.S. population, and a variety of industries, including many that traditionally disempower workers like agriculture, tourism, and manufacturing, California is a great testing ground for this legislation. If it can be successful there, it not only helps a whole lot of people, it can become model legislation for other states and possibly the federal government. You can sign the petition to support AB 816 at theselc.org under their About Us Advocacy tab, or frankly, just click the link in the segment notes. If we're going to change the system, we need to build working grassroots examples of alternatives. So support the legislation in California and use the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives listing of worker-owned businesses to support the ones in your area. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If democracy in the workplace matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about worker co-ops via social media so that others in your network can help change the system too. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? In the modern field of economics, carved out, looking at the production and distribution of goods and services, because that's what economics really focuses on, the man who's credited with being, in a sense, the father of modern economics as a discipline is this fellow Adam Smith. Adam Smith is not very well known, and most folks don't read that work anymore, but his most famous book was called The Wealth of Nations. And he asked himself the question, and then wrote his answer in the book, 
Why are some countries richer than others? What explains the difference between a rich country and a poor country? And basically his hope was to learn and understand in a way that would help poorer countries to become better off, which he assumed they would want to be, and his assumption uh, was perfectly reasonable. So Adam Smith had this idea he was going to answer the question. And here's how he answered it. He said that the new economy developing at that time around him in Great Britain, he was a Scottish thinker and a professor in, uh, in the north of Scotland, there he decided that this new economic system, which we now call capitalism, which was emerging out of this system that existed before, very differently feudalism, which existed before, he thought this capitalism was an engine of economic progress, that it would make countries rich, that because England had gone further in this capitalist development than anywhere else in the world, that that explained why, already towards the end of the 18th century, England was such an economic powerhouse, about to become a kind of global empire, which in the second half of the 18th and for much of the 19th century, Britain was. And so, Adam Smith developed an analysis of capitalism in which, while he made criticisms, and many, he was a very balanced kind of thinker, nonetheless, his basic take was, capitalism is wonderful, capitalism is an engine of economic growth, capitalism is much better than what went before, and we should celebrate it, we should study it, and we should spread it around the world, to make everybody rich. Right after him came another man who systematically worked all this out, named David Ricardo. And so generally in economics, Adam Smith and David Ricardo are considered the founders, the people who began the discipline of economics. And they are both understood to have been, and they were, champions of capitalism. They were the people who analyzed the problem from the perspective of someone who admires, who celebrates, who endorses what they're studying. And that's fine. It's perfectly fine to have someone who loves the topic go in there and study the topic and explain it to us. However, it's also important to remember that like most things in the world, there are people who don't like what others do like. You know, some of us like chocolate, others don't. Some of us like pizza, others don't. Some of us like the rainy day, others don't. Some of us like capitalism, and others don't. And that has been true from day one of capitalism. That isn't new, that isn't odd, that is the most normal and natural thing. So, were there economists about the time of Adam Smith and David Ricardo, or in the years afterwards, were there people who looked at capitalism and said, that isn't so good. Human beings can do better than capitalism, and I, as a critic, such persons might have said, would like to examine it from the standpoint of a critic. And the answer is yes. And by far, the most famous of the critics of capitalism, who started writing just about the time that David Ricardo stopped writing, 
So it comes right, right after Smith, Ricardo, is Karl Marx. And the reason Karl Marx is important is because he was the greatest, he was one of the earliest, to provide a systematic, critical attitude and examination of capitalism. And before I sketch the differences, as you've asked me to do, I want to use a metaphor to make sure what I've just said is understood. And the metaphor I've used before, I'm going to use again. Imagine we were trying to understand a family that lived up the street from us. Mama, Papa, two children. And the children were young adults. And we took the as a task, understanding that family. And final point, we knew, just by gossip in the neighborhood, we knew that one of the two children thought it was the greatest family, felt terribly excited and grateful that he or she had been born into and raised in this family, while the other one thought the family was very psychologically messed up, dysfunctional family, serious problems, and was determined to withdraw from that family and form his or her own family as soon as possible because this wasn't a successful family in that person's mind. One child who celebrates, one child who thinks you can and should do a lot better. If you wanted to understand the family, would you speak only to one of the two children? And I don't care right now for this point which one. Would you talk only to the celebrant or only to the critic? I think most reason reasonable people would quickly answer me by saying, you would talk to both of them. You would want to get the perspective of the person who loved the family, and you want to get the perspective of the person who's critical of the family. You will then listen to them both, ask your questions, and come up with your own assessment, which will tilt towards one or the other, according to what you found most persuasive. That would be the rational way to proceed. That means in economics, if you want to understand capitalism, you should certainly study and listen and read the works of Adam Smith and David Ricardo and the whole tradition that comes out of them of people who love and celebrate and endorse capitalism by all means. As Marx said, they discovered many useful things. We have much to learn from them. But exactly the same applies to the work of Karl Marx and to the very impressive tradition of Marxist critical economics that has developed. Marx died in 1883. So here we are roughly 150 years later. And Marxism, his ideas, have spread to every country on the face of the earth. People in Asia, Africa, Latin America, Europe, North America have worked with the Marxian system, developed it, elaborated it. So there's a very sophisticated, complicated set of critical economic assessments of capitalism. Because that's what Marx focused on, criticizing capitalism. Didn't spend a lot of time imagining what would be better. He sketched that occasionally, but his point was, here are the flaws of capitalism, here are the problems of capitalism, let's work to do better than them. Let's change the system, let's build a new system. The problem in the United States, and I'm not going to be able to solve that in a short amount of time, but the problem in the United States has been, to be blunt, 
that we haven't done that. We haven't been reasonable or rational. We have excluded Marxian economics from most economics curriculums in the graduate schools, in the undergraduate schools, in the high schools. You'll have to look far and wide to get a reasonable course in economics taught by someone who is versed in the Marxian critical perspective, who shares that critical perspective, and who therefore can provide a counterpoint, an alternative to the celebratory attitude towards capitalism of the vast majority of the teachers. And this is not because there aren't Marxian critical economists around. It's because they have been systematically excluded. Now, you might have thought this had at least some shred of understanding uh, during the Cold War, when the United States and Russia were at each other, and there might be an understanding that people went a little bit too far by excluding another critical perspective. But the Cold War ended, by most accounts, in 1989-1990. That means we're uh, almost 25 years now. It's over 25 years beyond. Why are we still excluding Marxian critical economics? There's no excuse. It's intellectually dishonest, and it's shameful. But it means I can't, in a short amount of time, overcome that because it's built into our educational system unless and until people say they don't want this anymore. And I, for one, hoping that that time happens uh, rather soon. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Germany just banned college tuition. Now, prior to 2006, I lived in Germany 86, 87, and there was no college tuition then. College was free. In 2006, and I believe that was the election that brought Merkel in. I could be wrong, but, you know, Merkel is a conservative. She's sort of a Bob Dole conservative, but she's a conservative, the Christian Democratic Party. And in 2006, Germany actually allowed tuition. They allowed colleges to start charging. I mean, it was only... The, the maximum tuition in the country is about $4,500 a year, but they allowed it. And now, I think it was Lower Saxony, now the last of the German states to allow college tuition, colleges to charge tuition, has banned the practice. So in Germany, because they have a national health care system, you cannot go broke because you get sick. It doesn't happen in the country. And you cannot go broke or graduate from college broke because you went to college. This has to do with the commons. 
let me take this a step beyond just college, because there's all these areas that have to do with the commons where conservatives have been hell-bent for leather to bore holes into our commons to create opportunities for profit. When the things that have to do with our commons are better done by government. This is why government is created. Ronald Reagan wouldn't want you to know this. You're not going to hear this on right-wing talk radio. Now, you will understand this if you take any government class or any history class. But the purpose of government is to administer the commons for the public benefit, for the public good, for the general welfare, as our Constitution says, in two or three different places. So here now we have this article in the New York Times, Doctors Find Barriers to Sharing Digital Medical Records. You and I, with our tax dollars, have given $24 billion dollars $24 billion to hospitals, doctors' offices, and and, and by pass-through, virtually all of it went to uh, companies, for-profit corporations, the largest of which is um, discussed at some length in this article in the New York Times, Doctors Find Barriers to Sharing Digital Medical Records by Julie Cresswell. It's called Epic. It is. Uh, it was founded by Judith Faulkner, who is now worth over $2 billion. So you can make serious money when you are doing the business of the commons for profit. But here's the problem. As, as uh, for example, the new, you know, as, as Julie Cresswell writes in today's New York Times, almost 18 months after the Epic system was installed at Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital in Sioux City, Iowa, physicians there still cannot transmit a patient care document to doctors two miles south at Mercy Medical Center, which uses a system made by another major player in the field, the Cerner Corporation. It also notes, uh, separately, through its maintenance contact, contracts and other agreements, Epic charges a fee to send data to non-Epic systems. And the woman who started this company is worth $2.3 billion, according to the New York Times, which raises the question, and and she makes the point, the 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 Mrs. Ms. Faulkner, the woman who started the company, she makes the point the government didn't establish any standards for electronic medical records. They mandated them, but they didn't establish any standards. So we did. And our standards at Epic, in this in the case of this company, are thus and so, right? These are our standards. And it's secure, and it works, and it works well. And if you're within the Epic system, you can talk to each other. But if you're outside the Epic system, we're going to charge you extra to transmit your data, to modify, convert it, make it compatible, or you just can't do it. Now, this, you know, she is absolutely right in saying the government didn't establish standards. And and it's this is this post-Reagan belief that somehow standards or regulation are evil or bad. And somehow the marketplace is going to solve the problem. Well, eventually the marketplace will solve this problem. There'll be one company left standing. And now that the Defense Department is is about to put out an eleven billion dollar contract for digitizing medical records to a private firm, and it, it, in all probability to go to Epic, which is again, I'm not I'm not trashing this company. My point is that 
the if 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 we had said if our federal government had said here's the standards you have to be you have to have this level of security you have to have this level of of intercommunicate intercommunication ability i whatever the word is communicability communication with other systems or if we had just done it ourselves you know if the, if the federal government had simply established this and said you know it's here here's the system it's like Social Security. Social Security has never failed to pay a check. The IRS, the IRS is actually quite efficient at collecting taxes. The Department of Defense, you can you can you know complain all day long, and I I will not stop you about you know seven hundred military bases and spending more than every other country in the world on defense. But the fact of the matter is that the Department of, the Department of Defense knows how to get things done. Government can work. Government does work. Our public schools are now demonstrably better than our private schools, our charter schools. It's just, so there, you know, there is a time and place in the commons for government. Why do we have a a brand new billionaire? Why do we have a woman who's worth $2 billion because she's doing something that we should be doing? We, the people should be doing, our government should be doing. Or at least the government should be establishing standards so that, see, see, in the lack, in the lack of standards, what you end up with is whatever company owns the biggest platform ends up owning the marketplace because they're building walls around their system, which all of these companies are trying to do. They're all trying to say, we have this proprietary system. You have to use our system if you want to have, you know, electronic medical records. And sometimes they scan documents, sometimes they digitize documents, sometimes they enter manually enter the information. You know, and it's it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Right now, something like fourteen percent of uh, doctors' offices can actually communicate this stuff. I mean, this is this is bizarre. And what it does is it creates essentially monopolies. We see the same thing with our voting machines. You know, if we're going to use technology for voting, and we started out back in the 50s or 60s with these uh, mechanical voting machines, and you could literally walk around the back of the machine and see the gears turning and see the the counters incrementing. I did as a little kid. My mom was a, uh, you know, check people off the list and said, here, go vote. So if we're going to have machines, let's have transparent machines and let's have government-owned machines. But no, we've got to privatize this. And then with the Help America Vote Act, George W. Bush, 2002, we've got to give billions of dollars to these for-profit corporations, Diebold, ESNS, et cetera, via the states, federal money just channeled through so that the beating heart of democracy is in the hands of private for-profit corporations. Our health systems are in the hands of private for-profit corporations. Our prisons increasingly are in the hands of private for-profit corporations. This is the libertarian paradise that the Koch brothers and the the right-wingers and the Republican Party have promised us. And it doesn't work.
Now, what is the basic difference? Here, in a nutshell, is how to keep it in your mind, I think. In conventional economics, the economics that celebrates capitalism, that derives from Smith and Ricardo, there's a basic idea that a capitalist system is best understood as a market. A lot of people come with things to sell, a lot of people come with things to buy. Indeed, the folks coming with things to sell want to make some money so they can buy, and the people coming who buy are often buying to produce things that they will in turn sell. Buyers and sellers confront one another, sort of the image. And now capitalism is an arrangement in which the buyers and the sellers kind of bargain with one another to reach an agreement on how much the buyer will pay for what the seller sells, how much the seller will accept for what the seller provides to the buyer, and a, a deal is struck. And we call that deal the market price. It's the price at which the buyer and the seller are willing to exchange items. Money for goods, services for goods, services for money, whatever it is. And the basic idea here is, look at how free this is. Nobody is telling you what to buy. No one is forcing you to sell. No one is telling you what the terms are under which you will buy and sell. That is something voluntarily, freely agreed on by people. So it's an economic system that does, so the story goes, what people want. It provides a reasonable way to exchange goods and services. It allows everybody to play a role in shaping these prices. It's kind of fair, democratic, and the argument goes, it ends up making sure that the person who wants something most is the one who will pay the most for it, and so it will go to him. And that's a good thing because the seller wants it to go to the person who will make the best and most use of it, so he should give it to the person who's willing to pay the most because paying the most shows you're the one who's going to make something valuable with it. So the logic goes. It's a celebration of capitalism. Capitalism is efficient. Capitalism grows. Capitalism is fair. Capitalism is democratic. And here comes along Marx and says, no, no, no. First of all, Marx says that the thing about economics to focus on isn't the market, isn't buying and selling. There's something that happens before you buy and sell that's more important to look at. It's called production. Before there's anything to sell, before there's anything to buy, that thing has to be produced. The shirt, the hamburger, the software program, the automobile, the airplane, whatever it is. And the focus of economics, says Marx, should be on how capitalism organizes and accomplishes production. And when we look there, Marx says, we see a system that is not efficient and not fair and not democratic and unjust. Wow! We reach a very different conclusion, which, if you think about it, isn't so surprising, because he's a critic, and he's going to reach a different conclusion from a celebrant. What is Marx's argument? Very simple. In a capitalist production system, whether the enterprise is large or small, whether it's engaged in manufacturing or services, the same basic process happens. The worker comes and says, I would like a job. The worker who comes and says that is because that's how a worker lives. 
he or she doesn't have property to live off of. They have their skills, their brains, and their muscles, and they're trying to survive, and so they sell their capacity to work. And they come and they ask for a job. And the employer says, you know something? I need a worker. I'm in the business of producing something. Hamburgers, shirts, software programs, airplanes, automobiles, whatever it is. But I need a lot of workers. And you're offering to do work. So let's make a deal. I will hire you. I will buy your capacity to work. And that's what you're trying to sell, isn't it? Yes. And so they, they talk to each other. The employer, the capitalist, the buyer of labor capacity says, I want you to come 9 o'clock and stay till 5, Monday to Friday, or whatever the details are. You work with this machine over there on these raw materials that I will provide you, and this is what you do. And you work all that out, and then you come to that last key moment. Pay, salary, wage. And the employer says, I'll give you, let's say for the argument, uh, I'll give you $12 an hour. And you say, well, I want 20 And then you bargain back and forth. And let's say, just for the sake of argument, you end up at $15 an hour. Now Marx comes in and says, let's examine what that means. Every hour you're going to come, you're going to use your brains and your muscles to produce output. Because you're there, the employer can get more hamburgers, more shirts, more cars, more planes produced than if you weren't there. The workers, the more workers he has, the more working with machinery and so on, the bigger the output he has when it comes time to sell it. You do the work, you produce the goods. At the end of the day, at 5 o'clock, you go home. The work you produced, the fruits of your brains and your muscles working on the machines and the raw materials, immediately belongs to somebody else. You produced it, they get it. That's crucial. They then sell it. The employer sells it. And now here comes Marx's basic insight. The employer, says Marx, will never pay you $15 an hour unless the following is true. During that hour that you work, your brains and your muscle, you produce more than $15 worth of extra stuff for your employer to sell after you go home and leave it behind. That's right. You produce in an hour more than what he pays you. Why? Because that's why you're there. He's not hiring you to produce goods. He's actually hiring you to produce Profits, which every honest business person will tell you. He's not interested in those goods. As soon as you produce them, he sells them. His interest is in having more money at the end of this process than he started with. He wants to pay you $15 an hour, have you produce more than 15 say $18. He sells it, takes the 18 he gets, gives you the 15 he owes you for your wage, and keeps the other three for himself as the profits. That's Marx's argument. That's how capitalism works. And that is fundamentally unfair. Why? Because you've produced more than you've gotten. The worker who says to himself or herself, I am never going to work for any employer who doesn't pay me what I'm worth. 
That's a worker who hasn't understood Marx. The only way you're going to get a job, Marx says, is if you produce more than you're paid. Because if the employer doesn't get more from you than the $15 an hour he pays you, he has no incentive to hire you, and he won't. You're as interesting as the profit you produce. That means you produce more than you get. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Right away it creates conflict. Here's the conflict. You want more out of what you produce. The employer wants you to have less. The less he pays you, the more the profit he can keep. Built into the core of the capitalist system is conflict. Different interests. Clashing interests. That's why periodically workers strike when they've had enough. That's why employers are always trying to figure out ways to pay workers less. That's why they leave North America, Western Europe, and Japan and go to other parts of the world where they can get away with paying less. The whole development of modern capitalism and the in injustices of it and the inefficiencies of it come out of this basic core conflict. Marx said we can do better. And what did he sketch? A world in which the workers and the employers were no longer at each other because they became the same person. That is, the workers become their own bosses. The workers run the enterprise. Then there's no longer a conflict between the workers and the employers. It's a little bit like ending the conflict between slaves and masters by freeing the slaves because then there's no more the conflict because there's no longer the relationship. Marx's is a powerful, critical perspective. But my point isn't so much about Marx and economics. That's for another day. My point here is be aware that a proper understanding of economics, whether it comes from a politician's mouth, a journalist's pen, or a teacher, ought to be a presentation of the analysis and insights that those who love it achieved and the analysis and insights of those who criticized it achieved so that you really learn both and you can make your own decision. If that isn't done, you're not being taught, you're not being led, you're not being informed, you're being manipulated. Hi, Jay. This is Daniel from California. I just wanted to call in in regards to the point you made about people who work in the health insurance industry having an out in regards to wanting to keep private health insurance versus going social or socialized health care. I've been working in insurance for seven years um, at a general agency and now at an agency, and I've ran into and spoken to a surprisingly number, surprisingly high number of agents and people who work in peripheral settings to insurance companies, so not at Anthem Blue Cross necessarily or any other major carrier, but people who work in the peripheral industry, who very much supported the reforming of the individual market because it was just not a functional market. That's not to say that there weren't knee-jerk Republicans who just didn't want it because they just didn't want it, but 
as somebody who very much supports socialized healthcare in health insurance, <laughs> like the whole manner, but I personally think that it's more successful with a private option. And I think a lot of agents actually would agree with that. Agents are more interested oftentimes in groups rather than individuals because it's just more efficient. But essentially, I just wanted to call in and give that perspective that a lot of people within the industry did actually support a reforming, not the one that we got. A lot of people are unhappy, but we'll see what it can build into in the next few years. Uh, hopefully, there'll be more positive results. But currently, it's not functioning the way I personally would like to see just an independent payer program that would way simplify everything and lower and help start the lowering of the cost. Um, but that's a bigger discussion about the lowering of the cost. But uh, either way, uh, I just wanted to kind of give that different perspective. Thank you very much. Your show has been a delight to me for years, and I'm I listen I think to every episode that you've had over the last few years. So. Uh, Keep it up. It's fantastic, and I really appreciate all the perspective you bring. Uh, have a great day, and thank you very much. Hey, Jay, it's Wade. I figured I'd call in with my uh, crazy medical story, too. I recently went to the dentist, and, you know, I have a copay and all that, pretty good dental insurance, and well, I'm sitting in the in the chair there, they're doing all the work, and then they uh, apparently I didn't even realize this was really going on. They uh, they polish your teeth with uh, this device and this substance. No big deal, you know. About a week goes by, I get a bill from them because apparently the teeth polishing is not covered by my insurance, and they want fifty five dollars from me. Okay. Well, fuck you. I ain't paying it. That, that's that's my response to that. Because I didn't know that that wasn't covered by my insurance policy. Why the hell should I be required to pay this when I wasn't given the option? I mean, like, I know what's standard and routine in a, in, a, in a dental office. I'm not a dentist. That's why I go to the dentist. They're the experts in this stuff. Okay? So, uh, from my point of view, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm liable for it. That may make me an asshole, but you know what? Fuck them. I ain't paying them. Now, uh, on to my political point. If you are a liberal, a left, a progressive, whatever the hell you want to call yourself, and you support Obamacare, I have to ask if you're just, if you're just not, you know, pulling for your team on this one. Because how can you support Obamacare? I want everybody to go back and, and, and remember the epic meltdown of a debate that was Obamacare. They never once said the word, or the term, excuse me, health care. It was always health insurance, health insurance. We've got to get more people insured. What the fuck does that, good does that do anybody? We need health care. We don't need health insurance. Just because you have insurance does not mean you are going to get care. Obamacare is going to be this epic 800-pound gorilla in the way of, of single-payer health care for the next 30 years. That's what we're going to debate. We're going to debate Obamacare, not single-payer. So, Lord of God, it's got, I, I mean, support the repeal of Obamacare so we can focus on something that's actually going to gonna matter, it's going to impact our lives, it's going to better it. I, I'm, I'm very passionate about single-payer health care. I'm more of a freaking lefty than 
most people on the planet when it comes to this. I mean, I swear to God, I will chain myself to the White House gates with all you pinko coffee liberals and get pepper sprayed and beat by police for single-payer health care. I think it's a, a tragedy that we don't have it in this country, and I, I just can't understand it. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And I think stories like, like the caller and like your story, those stories need to be broadcast. They need to be like out there every day and just pounded and pounded and pounded. We've got to win the hearts and minds of the average American in order to get this done. I mean, we don't, but we've got to get rid of Obamacare. My God, it's just, that, that's going to give them an excuse to say, look, we did something. Oh, great. I mean, all you did was give the insurance companies lots of extra, you know, money, lots of extra customers that they didn't, they damn sure didn't earn. It's ridiculous. Anyway, say I'm sorry I'm ranting. I just, I really want single payer health care, goddammit. Have a good one. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So the time has come and gone. The, the, the moment of truth and uh, Best of Luck did not win a podcast award this year. It's very sad. Uh, I will admit that I knew that I didn't win a couple of weeks ago because I never uh, got offered a free plane ticket to Las Vegas <laughs> where I would have to have gone to pick up the award. So I had this sneaking suspicion I, I wouldn't be winning. Uh, no big deal, though. It, it was really a, a blessing in disguise because... I didn't have to go to Las Vegas this year. I, I can't recall if I told this story before. I probably did. But the last time I was in Vegas to pick up the award in uh, January 2013 for the 2012 Best Produced Category Award that, that we won, I ended up on the, on the phone with my mother while in Vegas. And so she was asking me how things were. And I told her how things were. And she responded, oh... That's called situational depression. And I said, oh, good. I'm so glad that I now have a word to describe how Las Vegas makes me feel. So really not having to go to Vegas was a blessing, not at all in disguise, actually. I, I was very excited to not have to go there this year. What I will say about the awards, though, is that uh, the person who won apparently is a former reality TV show contestant who started a podcast about the strategy of various reality TV shows. So really, what chance did we ever have? I mean, I'm trying to put together a little show, trying to do a couple little things like saving the world, and uh, and he was discussing reality TV. So uh, it, it's it's really, you know, all is right with the universe that uh, that things work out the way they did. And it reminded me of another quick funny story is that uh, the only roommate I've ever had who was not either a girlfriend or a landlord was this very nice and lovely guy named Ted. I have nothing bad to say about him, but it was interesting when, when we first made contact, it was like, you know, found each other on Craigslist sort of thing. And uh, so I was going to move into the spare room of the apartment he was already in and and so we got lunch to sort of get acquainted with each other before I moved in. And it, it should have been a little bit of a red flag when he said, I have an idea. Why don't we 
tell each other our list of aspects about our own personalities, which are very obnoxious so that we can sort of prepare each other for, you know, whatever annoyances may be on the way. And, you know, not to be like smug or, or anything like that. I was just like, look, don't get me wrong. I, I am positive that there are annoying things about me, but I don't know what they are. I, you know, I, I, I haven't made a list. I'm, I'm not prepared for this conversation. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm not annoying. I'm sure I am, but I, I just don't have anything prepared. And he said, okay, well, I'll just give you mine then. And he started to rattle off a list of things about himself uh, that he expected for me to find annoying. And um, prime, uh, primely placed in the list was his reality TV show addiction. And he would tape every episode of, at the very least, uh, Survivor and maybe a couple of others that I can't remember. And, you know, he would watch every one of them. And then, and then the other thing was that he would uh, always watch Jeopardy and play along uh, out loud quite loudly. Uh, that, that was his, his normal go-to. So, and, and he, he warned me ahead of time. He said, look, like my, my former roommate uh, would get really mad at me for doing this. And he would yell at me for wasting my life uh, for doing nothing but sitting on the couch and watching TV all day. And I don't want to have another roommate who yells at me and tells me I'm wasting my life. And I thought, well, of course, and you know, I'm not the kind of person to do that. I would never say something like that to someone. And, and honestly, at the time I thought I wouldn't even think it. Um, I, I'm not sure if that's true. Maybe, maybe I did think I would think it, but after, I don't know, seven or eight months or so, when I decided to move out, uh, you know, amicably, it was, it was a, a fine time I spent there. Uh, by the end, I definitely thought, um, boy, he is wasting his life and reality TV shows are the scourge of the universe. So in conclusion, I am totally not bitter and absolutely grateful uh, to have not won and not had to go to Las Vegas this year. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder See